we're partying in here. We got all kinds of beer. They're all going to laugh at him. I'm Alex Sprague. And I'm Jess Geyer. And uh, we watched Airheads today. Yeah, was that a line from the movie? Yes, that's uh, what Rex says to the fans and cops in the movie. I found it to be the funniest bad line in the movie, I think. I didn't think that there were any bad lines. I really liked this movie. It, it was just a very strange line. Like, we're partying here. We got all kinds of beer. He's just so... He wants to be liked so bad in that part of the movie that I found it just humorous. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, this movie, Airheads, is a 1994 uh, movie starring Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, and Adam Sandler as three members of a rock group who are trying to get their demo tape played on air. And compared to Going Overboard, this one is actually a movie. Yeah, like, the plot makes sense, so uh, we're not going to have to explain it for an hour straight. Uh, yeah. I don't think we finished editing the last episode, but my god, did it take forever to get through explaining what was going on. I haven't started, but I can imagine how long it's going to be. <laughs> well, do you want me to do, like, a quick recap? Yeah, let's, let's Wait, recap why it. Don't, oh. First, why don't you say, like, what we're doing in this podcast? So what we're doing is we're going through every single Adam Sandler and Happy Madison adjacent movie and non-adjacent, like part of that too, both. What's a good way to say that? Why don't you explain the Sandler? <laughs> yeah, okay. So every movie has a Sandler rating, one to three stars, one being something that's vaguely related, like Adam Sandler stars in it, but didn't write or produce it. Or it's a his baby, which would be a three-star movie. This Airheads is a one-star movie because he stars in it, but seemingly he probably didn't have that much to do with the joke writing, the directorship, or anything else. It seems like he was just in the movie. But I cannot imagine another actor playing his part. Yeah, I, I was looking at some of the choices for other people in the movie. Um John Cusack almost played Chaz, which I found very interesting. Weird. Okay. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I personally am really big into movies that are about like record stores and radio stations. I've never not liked a movie about that. So I, I always knew I was going to like this one. Anyway, what we're doing in this podcast, though, is exploring from the first movie Adam Sandler was in to the last, trying to figure out his merit as an artist, and the themes he explores, and what what he means. And should we hate him like every other podcast in the world does? Right now, I'm not hating him. I know that much. No, I really enjoyed this movie. And maybe it's, again, because the, the last movie was so bad. Um, <laughs> this one is, this one's really entertaining. I, I enjoyed it the whole way through. Um, and, you know, it, it had a plot, it had themes, and, w well, let's talk about the plot before I get into some of those yeah, things. Yeah, um, two things before I forget. One, do you want to guess how many times I laughed during this movie? Um, yeah, 20. It's actually only 15. Really? You laughed less. I One less, which is wild. I can't, like, it was definitely a better movie, but not not as many laughs, apparently. I laughed way more. There were so many times that I thought this it was just like the funniest thing. There was so much good phys physical humor, but okay, let's recap the plot real quick. I think at the top we should mention like definitely going to talk about the domestic abuse in it. 
So we'll we'll warn, I guess, before that. I don't know. Oh yeah, really good point. I think that's a actually a pretty big theme. I know they're kind of parodying uh rock star relationships, but we're gonna talk about domestic abuse in this episode. Yeah, so uh, if that's going to be something that bothers you, um, skip this one. Yeah. Because it is pervasive. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's kind of played for laughs, but not really. It No, it was harsh. Yeah, so what the first thing I wrote down was that it was already a better intro than Overboard. So the intro starts with Ian, the DJ at KPPX, some music for KPPX, Rebel Radio, and... Um, but it was it was a really entertaining opening. I knew exactly what we were getting to. It was very thematic. Um, and then we see Brendan Fraser on a motorcycle. His his look is good in this. He's I'm gonna tell you up front here. Several times in my notes, I just wrote, "Can we talk about how good Brendan Fraser looks? <laughs> how attractive he is in this movie?" On that note, have I ever told you about the Brendan Fraser marathon my friend Joe puts on annually? No. Yeah, it's. I'll talk about it some other time. We're going to have him on on a later show. I actually can't believe he didn't pick the one with Brendan Fraser to be on. This is the only one with Brendan Fraser, in fact. Yeah. So Brendan Fraser pulls up on his motorcycle to Palatine Records, and um, he starts dressing up. I'm like, what is he doing? Is this his normal outfit? But he's trying to dress up like a delivery guy, and he sneaks into the building past the security guards. And apparently this is not the first time he's done this, because the security guards make it very clear that they're after him again. Um, but he tries to find a uh, record executive, and uh, he eventually does find a guy uh, who has a terrific soul patch, played by Judd Nelson, and he wants to get his album, you know, he wants to, he wants to get his album played, he wants to get a, a record deal uh, at this record label, and this really reminded me of those scenes between, in Going Overboard, between Shecky and Dickie Diamond, yeah. where Shecky's trying to get Dickie Diamond to let him open for him. There's a lot of uh, that same thematic element in this of i just want to be heard they say that basically verbatim over and over throughout the entire movie yeah so the security guards eventually well the the exec tells him no we're not i don't take unsolicited albums the lawyers would have a field day and then the security guards find him and kick him out um then it cuts to chaz who is Brendan Fraser. Uh, Chaz at home watching TV. He's watching MTV and his girlfriend Kayla comes in and he tells her that, you know, he was at Palatine Records and she, um, well, this is where we start seeing a lot of that domestic violence. Uh, <laughs> apparently, Brendan Fraser dropped her makeup in the toilet and she like throws the whole box at him and starts screaming at him. But then she immediately drops that when she hears about this quote unquote meeting that he had at Palatine Records. Yeah, which he purposely embellishes to make it sound like they had a meeting and he wasn't kicked out by security guards right away. Exactly. But then he lets that on that that's what happened and she headbutts him in the nose and then kicks him in the balls. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I just wrote, wow, this is awful already. Yeah. And then they kind of, he gets thrown out of the house and they leave it basically at that. Yeah. And I thought like that was going to be like the setup and later on Brendan Fraser is going to find another girlfriend who is going to be better, but that doesn't happen. Yeah. So we get to see Steve Buscemi. He's working at a store, a toy store or something like that. And he has the best facial hair. <laughs> he does. And... 
then we meet Steve Buscemi's character's brother, who's played by Adam Sandler. Uh, real quick, they they show the toy store just so that they can show that he steals from the toy store. Only reason it's in the film. Oh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. Anyway, we meet Adam Sandler's character, who is, again, in the best outfit. Perfect outfit. Like, very, very 90s. Yeah, it's the the showing the fact that he has abs shirt. I don't know what the crop top, I guess. Yeah. It, it's it's very much that. I mean, if you had abs, you're going to wear a crop <laughs> it, top. I so. would I would wear that shirt right now if I had abs. Anyway, um Brendan Fraser is going to move in with Adam Sandler and Steve Buscemi and they go to their terrible apartment and Steve Buscemi shows off his fake guns that he's stolen from the toy store. These fake Uzis that are supposed to look real yeah they were taken Um, off the market because they were too real which is something that happened around that time uh, from what i can tell um i do remember a little bit of that from my childhood but also just looking it up they used to take guns off the market all the time because they looked too real there's a lot of really fun 90s toy references in (laughs) in this scene because uh steve buscemi brings home a crash test dummy um there's a stretch armstrong I'm like, oh, this is so, like, it reminds me of the toys I played with as a kid. And uh, Steve Buscemi has filled up his <laughs> his um, fake guns with hot sauce. Like, Without <laughs> really, spray. there's no real reason for it. He just, it's like it could be pepper spray. And then he puts them in a bag for later. Well, he says that it's for home defense in case a Hollywood Boulevard <laughs> guy comes <laughs> Went to his gross-ass apartment. Well, it cuts to a concert that's going on, um, and it is the Sons of Thunder, and they are dressed up in, like, these kitschy outfits that are supposed to, like, I don't know, tribal voodoo people. It's very distasteful. Yeah. They're also just a real band, um, which they're, they're still playing music, not... Not great. I don't know if this was, like, the biggest thing they had done by then, but, uh... But they're not the Sons of Thunder. Their actual band name is something different. Yeah, but they they were, like, I th- I think playing their real music there. They make fun of this music. Yeah, they just said they were better. Uh, one of the things I've noticed in the both these movies so far is the constant, uh... Constant thing for them to point out how talented and good they are compared to other people. And then, like, they tend... To never show if they're good or bad. Which I guess is just a storytelling mechanic of them being like, well, everyone will think they're good because we're never actually going to say they're, they're bad. But at the same time, you know, they, they suck. <laughs> yeah. Well, they find out that this band has been basically sponsored by KPPX. So they want to go get their their demo played at KPPX. So they go over there. Um, it's, it's apparently locked up tight. So they have to like break into the radio station. Um, and this is where we really get to see Adam Sandler playing, like, that childlike man that we see him play in so many other movies. He has, like, the the voice is down, unlike in Going Overboard. He has that Adam Sandler voice, the one that everyone's familiar with. Yeah, he's he's playing his his young self, but he, he he's really playing up the fact that he's kind of dumb and doesn't know what's going on, and is just kind of there for the ride stuff. Yeah. He still has yet to do anything in a movie, I think, to influence the outcome of the movie. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. But anyway, um, he 
they they get in. They they eventually get in the building, and we hear this conversation very briefly between Kramer and um the the manager, the station manager. I was really like thrown off guard by seeing Kramer in yeah, the it, movie. It's funny too to me that you recognize that and not who the manager is. No, I don't recognize who the manager is because all I could think about was the skit from I think you should leave with the charades guy. Oh yeah, he is. He has the exact same haircut as he that guy. He has the same haircut. Yeah. But the guy who is playing Milo, the manager, is uh, Michael McKean. He's the dude from This Is Spinal Tap. Oh. <laughs> A lot of the people who pl- are in this have done music movies, basically. I see. So the the Lone Rangers—that's the name of their band. They they get into the DJ booth and. And Ian, who's played by um, uh, Joe Montagna, starts talking to them. Yeah, so he turns it into an interview and he asks them to describe their sound. And they really can't. Like, they can't yeah, describe their sound. They, they end up ca- calling themselves Power Slop. What? They call themselves Power Slop. That's what they oh, say their like genre is. That's so funny. Well, eventually Milo, like, tries to kick him out. And Steve Buscemi pulls out his fake gun. And I was like, wow, escalation. Mm-hmm. Um... And Chaz pulls out a fake gun, too, and he says, all I want to be is heard, which is basically the same line as from Going Overboard, except this is a theme that they will actually follow through on in the movie. Yeah, um, but at the same time, they have they do run into the same issue of, while saying they want to be heard, having nothing to say, which I find very interesting, because it's the same thing of, I just want to tell jokes, but they don't have any. Yeah, good point. I didn't think about that. Let's get back to that. I'm just going to finish up the recap. They eventually get all of the hostages on the station. They get them all gathered together and they try to get their demo played, but the demo tape gets ruined. In the meantime, Kramer is crawling through the air ducts like diehard. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I learned uh, this radio station filming split spot shares a uh, parking lot with the diehard building. Yeah, they're, like, across the street from each other. Yeah. Like, Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of really good physical humor in this movie. Michael Richards is super physical comedy-based, so they probably got him for just the physical comedy aspect of it. And Chris Farley. And, well, speaking of physical humor here, like, when their tape catches on fire, Adam Sandler tries to flee the building, and there's this really funny scene where because the police kramer called the police of course there's a funny scene where sandler has a little standoff with a cop like they do like a little walking dancey thing it was it was really funny and it really shows some of the that that physical humor that adam sandler does where like he does goofy walks and stuff like that also i'm gonna point out do you know who that cop was no alan covert again my (laughs) favorite man that's the only thing he did in the movie but good good dude He's going to be my number one throughout this entire series. So they, you know, they they talk about their hostage situation. They talk about making demands uh, because they realize there's no going back now. Chris Farley and um, uh, Officer O'Malley, they they show up. They're going to be like the hostage negotiators. Um, And there is a, a small gathering of fans and groupies showing up at the radio station because they hear what's going on on the radio. Uh, and this is very exciting for them. Uh, keep in mind, their music has not played for longer than five seconds, but they are gathering fans. Yeah, when they pl- try to play their tape, it burns up because, I don't know, something. Um, and, but I was going to say, it starts the subplot of 
looking for Chaz's ex or current girlfriend because she has the only other copy of the song. Right, that's right. Which she has thrown out of her car. Yeah. <laughs> In the meantime. Um, there is a scene here that I want to talk about late- later when Bushimi tries to make Adam Sandler sound mean um, and threatening. So I'm going to yeah. come back to that later. But outside, the LAP- LAPD SWAT team shows up and uh, the SWAT guy, Officer Mace, shows yeah. up and they, are, they clearly have an antagonistic relationship. Um, the SWAT guy wants to go in guns blazing um, and the SWAT guy secretly talks to Kramer and tries to um, get inside information so he can go above O'Malley's head. This is where there's a fun montage where they start playing music and like taking albums and tickets and giving them out to the very large crowd that is now gathered outside. Beavis and Butthead end up calling into the radio station, which I thought was a really fun like cameo. And this is also the point where I noticed that Rebel Radio, their their mascot is actually like a skull with a Confederate hat on. Yeah, at one point, uh, Steve Buscemi does put on a Confederate hat, which is very, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's so far away from like what punk and like metal music means to me now. And it's just, it's very interesting to see that. The media is covering this they kind of turn it into an anti-capitalist thing even though that is not at all what they are trying to do they they have no intention of making this some kind of political demonstration they literally just want to get their demo tape heard the SWAT guy talks to Kramer about the quote-unquote shrew that he married and how he cheated on her cheated on him with the pool guy you didn't mention uh, Adam Sandler's character Pip is a pool guy so Ian and Chaz, they have a conversation about how classic rock had stuff to say, but Brendan Fraser disagrees, but he can't really voice, like, why he disagrees with that. And this is when Ian finds out that Milo has a crate of Kenny G CDs and a pair of shorts and, like, all these easy listening tapes. And this is when they find out that Milo was planning to turn the radio station into a soft rock easy listening station. Yeah, basically, they're going to sell out um, as if that has any meaning to someone who is playing popular stuff on the radio. Exactly. But they like to pretend, so. Of course. So in the meantime, Chris Farley finds Kayla at this punk metal club where White Zombie is playing. He gets stuck in the mosh pit. He eventually, like, encounters a group of punks who, like, push him and they're like, like, you're in the wrong place. Like, like. Because he was kind of harassing Kayla. It's all metalheads in the movie, not punks. Yeah, That's it's... they're specifically trying to be metal and metalheads. Sure, but I understand that to a lot of people that doesn't mean much different. But they're supposed to be metal. They hate grunge as part of their aesthetic. They make a throwaway thing of "Oh, you like that shit from Seattle." So back at the radio station, um, they've tied up Milo, and Buscemi gets on the radio with the cops and asks for a record deal, which makes Brendan Fraser upset because he says that the record deal needs to be unsolicited. He he wants it to be serious. He wants people to actually hear their music. Susie and Pip have sex when Pip is, he says he's thinking about swimming pools and how he wants to be in the water and spin around like an egg, which, yeah. <laughs> like, he's acting like a child. So eventually, um, they get a lot of their demands a police officer shows up pretending to be a record exec and they figure out he's a cop. But then later, the real record executive from the from Palatine, from the beginning of the movie, shows up 
and wants them to sign a record deal. And at first, Brendan Fraser does not want this to happen because the guy never actually heard his music. But eventually he he gives in and, and signs and they fly in a stage via helicopter for them to perform on. And they get all dressed up in these silly outfits. And then they find out that the stage isn't actually hooked up to power. And they just want them to pant, the record exec just wants him wants them to pantomime their music for a music video. And they absolutely refuse to. In fact, they start destroying the stage. They invite all of the fans uh, from the crowd to come up and, and help them destroy the stage. And everyone loves it. And it ends with the Lone Rangers performing live and in prison. Uh, and they're going to be out in six months and go on on tour. And that's basically how the movie ends. Yeah, it, it pretty basic. They Yeah, hostage, they end. They're more popular than ever. People love the fact that they took people hostage. Um, that's just kind of conceit you have to have with the movie. But during it, there's there's some interesting themes, I think. The wanting to be heard is probably the most obvious one. But they have a few others that I found interesting, like how they handled masculinity again. Because, again, Sandler is put into a position where he's supposed to be more masculine. Then they have a weird thing with capitalism throughout the movie with how music a music record label is what they call M- someone whose head is soaked up by MTV's like first image of capitalism so that's why they go there well let's talk about that theme let's talk about because i think that is yeah. tied very closely with the theme of wanting to be heard so Brendan Fraser's idea of being a rock star at the beginning he just wants his album to be heard by a record exec and he 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 wants his music to get out there but what people are seeing is just this image, which is not, it doesn't have anything to do with their actual music. They talk about how they don't want a gimmick and they just want to play music. And it's very funny because they're dressed like stereotypical rockers and they show throughout the movie that he's, it's not that he's pretending to be someone, but he's like purposely putting on an image. And it's a very funny difference between I want to be heard, I don't want a gimmick when the guy's kind of living as a gimmick. At the end, uh, he has a speech he gives in front of people where he says, like, I used to be a geek, and it's okay if you don't love me anymore. Yeah, my name is Chester. I used to have short hair. I played D&D. I ate my own boogers. Yeah, and then... The, but then the crowd is like, they start saying, like, yeah, I play D&D too. I used to masturbate all the time. <laughs> like, Yeah, uh, Lemmy from Motorhead at that point yells that, I used to be the editor of the yearbook or something along those lines. Yeah. So just like showing that this this image of of metalheads being really hard is really they're just nerds. Yeah, I mean metalheads are probably the nerdiest oh, yeah. like subsect of music and incredibly one of the thing one of the things I find funny is the fact that like it is a physical appearance you have to adopt. You can't just accidentally wear all leather and chains and grow your well you can grow your hair out accidentally but like the dressing up with that stuff isn't something like your mom doesn't buy you a leather jacket and chain belts and stuff yeah and there's actually a scene too when chris farley goes to the club um whiskey that metal club uh that i was talking about before he's looking for kayla and all he knows is that it's a blonde woman wearing black tight clothing and that's everybody there and it's really hard for him to find her because everyone's dressed the same. So it's definitely like this this idea of image over substance. 
Yeah, there there is at no point substance to anything they have. I mean, I think even them carrying fake guns is like a point that they're just playing with toys. There's no real, for them, there's no real expectation of negative outcome. They do worry a little bit about getting arrested. And Pip, played by Adam Sandler, mentions, like, I just don't want to go to jail. He says, I'm too fragile. Which is the best line delivery. And that's why they're they're bullied a little bit into signing a record contract, because the record label has lawyers. They have power. and Yeah, and I find that interesting, because there's two things about that. One, uh, the record label's label is called Palantine Records, which is, I think, a reference to the Empire from Star Wars, right? That's just what it's supposed to be. I don't know. Let's make sure that that's not actually a real record label. It's, it's not a real record label, I can tell you that much. A palatine is a high-level official attached to imperial or royal courts in Europe since Roman times. It was also uh, the lady running for president and taxi driver, I think. Anyway, it it means like a high official. Yeah, so, I mean, their official big empire type record thing is how I read it. Mm -hmm. And something I found interesting uh, was the relationship these three white guys had with every black person in the movie which i think had a lot to do with the fact that they were not playing the same game kind of one thing is uh the main cop in the movie was uh ernie hudson the guy from ghostbusters mm-hmm. <laughs> this black police officer there and there's a point where brendan Fraser jumps up on a cop car and starts chanting to the mostly white crowd rodney king over and over yeah you have to keep in mind this was 1994, I mean, the the Los Angeles riots are very fresh in memory. They were only a couple years before this movie came out. Yeah, this movie, um, from what I saw quickly, was very edgy when it came out. But, like, I don't think they dealt with that great, but it was very interesting to see that, like, um, there's two, two black members of the cast that were hostages and the difference between them and the rest of the characters in the movie was, like, very stark to me. Mm-hmm. They had uh, Marcus by Reg E. Cathy, Reginald E. Cathy, uh, basically just hated Pip off the back. Because Pip is trying to, like, be cool with him. He's trying to, like, he's trying to say, like, <laughs> yeah, oh, I'm uh, a cool white guy. Don't worry, I'm on your side. Yeah, he said, uh, he says to him. Hendrix is God. Uh, that's what I remember yeah. him saying. And he calls him G. <laughs> yeah, and Marcus says something like, you know, I don't I don't need to talk to a white man with a gun or something along those lines. Yeah, there is there's a lot of really interesting like race relations in this movie too because when when Marcus is actually freed as a hostage, the cops well, actually, O'Malley, doesn't he? Like, grab him and put a gun to him. No, no, it's uh, the SWAT guy. Oh, the SWAT the, guy. The bad cop. Right. But they, like, yeah. act like he's a bad guy, even though they've definitely seen who these three people are with guns. Like, he is treated like he is the offender. Yeah. At that point, he has pictures of all of them that were faxed to him. Yeah. So he knows who the, the hostage takers are. But they, they just over and over have... Chaz and Rex, which is Steve Buscemi and Brendan Fraser, run out with their fake guns near the crowd and, like, cheer them on and get them, like, hyped. And women come out to, like, be near them and stuff. Even though, like, 
we know California's relationship to armed people at that point. Yeah. I mean, again, it is LAPD who is yeah. here. I, I wonder if they were trying to make a point of that or if that kind of thing would have gone kind of unnoticed. Yeah, I, I really don't know because they don't really resolve any of those themes, but it's certainly present there. They, I mean, they have a point where uh, Adam Sandler asked the other black member of the cast, uh, a woman named Yvonne, uh, it's Michelle Hurst plays her. He just says, why don't black people like me to her? Yeah. And it was like a very like, what that, that has nothing to do with what's going on anywhere else in the movie. And it's pretty interesting that they, uh, they just had him say it. Yeah. And I really wish I knew like what more to say about that other than like pointing out that like they, they certainly talk about it. They certainly talk about like the theme of, of police brutality is there, but it's not, again, not really delved into. They, they say stuff like, why uh why why don't black people like me when earlier you know one of them was putting on a rebel hat without thinking twice about it oh yeah, and and they're working at a place called rebel records that uses a confederate flag and then calling themselves you know punk and cool one thing i noticed too which is the very first thing uh the dj says when the movie starts is calling the listeners pinheads which now is used a lot to talk about like skinheads which in in punk skinheads can either be you know nazis or not but pinheads does kind of have the connotation of not the kind you like so the nazis to be clear yeah yeah the the nazis so like i feel like they didn't really get into it but i think they thought about it yeah yeah i mean i don't know if there's much else to say about that other than it's it it's interesting that they thought about it, maybe, but I don't think mm-hmm. they really went anywhere with it. Mm-hmm. I just think it's an important thing. Well, also, a really weird thing is, so we watched the TV ending, not the theatrical ending. And the TV ending, it ends with Steve Buscemi's character humping his guitar while he plays. And then Pip tells him, like, hey, dude, like, stop. And they scroll, or, yeah, it pans down. And it just shows two black inmates, like, looking at him unamused. But apparently like in the th- confused even yeah. But apparently in the theatrical release, it was like two inmates who were just like horny for it. So, like, wh- why did they make that change? Maybe they didn't want horny inmates. But I'm confused by that. I don't have an answer for that one. Yeah, but I mean that kind of brings to mind the theme of masculinity, and I really wanted to talk about this piece. This is where Adam Sandler like his character comes into play and how the similarities are with Shecky from going overboard. What I mentioned in the last episode with Shecky was that there's a lot of, there are a lot of themes of toxic masculinity and this performative heteronormativity that Shecky like feels pressured into doing, even though it's not really being himself. And this is kind of the reverse of this a little bit because when Adam Sandler's character Pip, when Pip is just being himself, he gets women all the time. This is mentioned that like they just go for it. And his normal self is this very childish, airheaded, weird guy. Yeah, and they uh Rex or Chaz, I don't remember which, calls him quiet cool. Yeah, Chaz calls him quiet cool. Rex, his older brother, on the other hand, 
really performs masculinity in this movie. I mean, he's the one who brings out the gun in the first place. And there's that scene where he's telling Pip, or where, yeah. where Rex is telling Pip to be scary and to be mean and to be threatening. And when Pip is trying this out, like he can't, he can't do the voice. His voice is high pitched. He sounds unconfident. He's not very comfortable with it. The line that really gets Adam Sandler's character to say it in a masculine, a quote unquote masculine way, this deep, angry way, is when he says, I'm going to cut your, I'm going to stab your head off with my dick. Mm-hmm. That's the line where he actually gets to sound like that deep, scary sound. But then later he says that hurt my throat. So clearly yeah. this is not something that he is comfortable with. And it's very clear. It causes him physical pain to, to be like that, which mm-hmm. I found interesting. Yeah, and he's he doesn't perform masculinity in that traditional sense. Not like Steve Buscemi's character who when he comes out of the building he's like posing like like he's showing off his muscles and flipping people off and grabs his junk. Grabs his junk. Everything to say I'm masculine. Um and I don't think Pip Adam Sandler ever goes out and like shows off for the crowd. No, he never does. Yeah. Now I want to talk, I don't know if you picked this up, the connection between uh, the girl that Pip has sex with and Chaz. Did you see the weird connection I saw? No. What do you mean? So do you remember how uh, Susie, the girl, introduces herself to Pip? Susie with two Zs. Do you see how Chaz spells his name? Two Zs. Yeah. That is that just huh. am I just making stuff up there or did they specifically have a two names not spelt that way have two Z's so that they could talk about the fact that Chaz kind of pushes Pip into everything. And then um, during the sex scene of Susie and Pip, the only thing Pip says is help. And there's the I mean, he looks I like he's enjoying himself. Yes, but he does say help. And while he looks like he's enjoying himself, you know holding up hostages he also says i just don't want to go to jail (laughs) like Mm -hmm. he doesn't seem like a willing participant of everything yeah he's certainly not i'm not saying he was taken advantage of by Susie because technically he was holding her hostage at the time i don't think he was taking advantage of her or she of him yeah i I don't see i was gonna say i don't see a problem with that i think it was supposed to be about the fact that Susie and chaz kind of filled the same role of kind of just telling him what to do and he's not 100% sure if he wants to. That's really interesting because I don't see I don't see Chaz as the person who does that to Pip. I see Rex as more of the character who does that to Pip. I think Chaz does it to both of them because mm. he he kind of yes, Rex is the one who pulls the gun, but they're there because of Chaz. They they kind of everything's set in motion because of Chaz and that's partially because he's the main character but like it wouldn't have happened without him that's true but i i really feel like i mean steve buscemi is the one who pulls the trigger on everything yeah i guess that's true it just i no, but I, I i think that is very interesting with like the two z's thing i mean maybe they were just trying to put their names cool but maybe it felt like to me once i saw that chaz's name was spelt with two z's i was like hmm interesting yeah, I, I I mean, is it a coincidence? Maybe, but who cares? That's what textual analysis is all about. <laughs> Speaking of Chaz, too, though, the thing with 
with performative masculinity that I find so funny from that era is how you could look and still be called like very manly man. Because in this movie, Brendan Fraser is gorgeous. He's beautiful. Like in yeah. almost a very feminine way. He has like beautiful long hair. He, I mean, he has that baby face. And I just, I think that's very interesting. And then you also see like Adam Sandler with the crop top, which is now like a style that you only see on women. Did you see the like uh, image they used for one of the posters? It's Brendan Fraser facing away from the camera with a guitar over his ass. And he's wearing a crop top and like just showing his long hair off. I mean, he... He he's spo- I mean, there is something to be said about like the glam and metal and like mm-hmm. it, it's the croaker from the last movie of like I'm I'm a sexy dude playing my music, but mm-hmm. he definitely doesn't strike me as like an overtly masculine dude, but he really wants to be for the image. Now, on that note, this is where we can really talk about that domestic violence situation between him and his girlfriend because Kayla kicks the shit out of him she is violent to him he's and he is not violent to her but she like slaps him she headbutts him and kicks him in the balls and it's like just very toxic and he kind of takes on you know he takes on that it's sort of the beleaguered husband shrewish wife role but it's also like he is the victim of domestic violence in this situation which is typically a role we only see I mean, women play. I mean, it's it's very clear that most victims are of domestic violence are women. Yeah. And I'm not really sure if they're trying to point out, like, how this makes him... Like, in the movie, are they saying, like, this makes him less of a man? Or, or are they just demonstrating this? It's... I, I I don't know. Because they never, they never play that. They kind of play it for laughs, but also they... I don't know. Just the way that they handle that. Yeah. So, the domestic... The second domestic abuse scene is she comes into the station when they have hostages with the tape um the tape at this point had been like beaten up peed on by a dog it was in no good condition and they get into an argument and she just slaps him when he says something oh it was that the song they were playing he didn't even write it for her um then she throws a chair through a window breaking the radio station so they can't play it um and she screams at him and then she's nice to him once he says i love you to her which is like she yeah. makes them say it. And they I'm like, stay together at the end of the movie. They are together. Yeah. She's in the prison dancing in the background. Yeah. Um, and that is, I mean, if if the genders were reversed, if mm-hmm. Brennan Fraser was actually a female character and Kayla was a male character, we would be absolutely appalled. You know, I am actually appalled by this. Yeah. But you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be able to put that in a movie. You would never be able to make a movie again, you know? Yeah. The The thing about it, too, is that it's not played for laughs. They, Everyone else in the scene, especially when she's about to like throw a chair, is looking at him silently and like yeah. uh, signaling for them to get out, for him to get out of the way. It's like... It's uncomfortable. Yeah. And they don't really... It's not good how they end that. But I think specifically that might kind of say something because every single theme that comes up, they don't end in a successful manner and i think they did that on purpose that's a really good point there's them wanting to be heard because they have a message but they never get their message out yeah and they don't have a message them wanting to have someone listen to their music so they could or get a record contract and no one ever listens to their music and they get the contract anyway because they're popular now basically once 
they have these people hostage and they get the media on them and they know they're going to be popular if they get signed, the Palantine Records guy just goes, yeah, we'll sign you. You're part of the in crowd now and you get special privileges. Um, what he says is, what is it? Rock stars don't go to jail. Um, mm-hmm. References Vince Neil, who famously, you know, basically killed, I think did kill someone drunk driving and had, he went to jail for 15 days. Like, which is like not pulling punches as far as the movie goes to make that reference. Mm-hmm. Like the thing is, d- did they purposely show, like if you just sell out, uh, you won't have as many problems and it doesn't, you don't need emotional growth. You don't need to have a message you just need to be part of the in crowd because that's what happens it is what happens but at the end they're literally in prison for three months for six it's six months three with good behavior oh yeah but i mean but they are you know they they don't show them out of jail they they are in jail at the end of the movie which is symbolic is what i'm saying but then the ending credits do say they go triple plant yeah well, they, they're they extremely popular for no talent. Um, the final song they play is, I don't think it's supposed to be bad, but like it is bland nonsense, basically. Mm-hmm. It's called Degenerated, and it talks about someone named Johnny, which is, you know, the blandest name, basically, you can use in a song. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think they did it on purpose. I think they sell out, which they needed to to not go to jail for very long. And it, it's supposed to basically show that there's a lot to the fact that musicians don't have much to say when they can become rich. Yeah, I mean, there is this weird dynamic, uh, like when you are an artist of any type, there's this idea of a dichotomy between someone who does art for art's sake, but the the catch-22 there being, if you do art for art's sake, you can't get your message out, but if you get your message out, you're no longer doing it for art's sake. You, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there is a uh, a message in it about capitalism. I don't know how well it handles it. I think it's interesting to show a protagonist who is just like, oh yeah, we, we signed with a record label to get ourselves out of a jam and now we're super popular. I don't know. I thought this movie was really interesting. It had a lot of, you know, it had a lot of interesting themes that I think that they followed up on better than they did in Going Overboard. What do we learn here about adam sandler because this is an adam sandler podcast yeah so he is a main character of this movie technically but i think out of the main characters he definitely says the least he is definitely having that infantilized thing about him where he doesn't really say much he kind of acts as a comedic foil a lot but as an actor adam sandler has improved so much by this point it's amazing so much he has now spent four years on SNL. This movie has come out five years since the last one they did. And he can really hold his own. He's he's funny. He's He plays nervous in the movie at times, but he's not nervous as an actor anymore. It's clear what he's going for as this character. And like I said at the beginning, I can't see any other actor playing him. And you definitely notice uh, with Chris Farley in the movie that their relationship... I mean... They, they don't have any scenes together, but you know no. he was in the movie because Adam Sandler was. Yeah. Chris Farley actually, like, didn't interact with any other character, like, any of the other main characters. He was just, like, he didn't actually have to be in the movie, but it was just fun to see him. But yeah, like, I don't know. This movie really 
wasn't a huge Adam Sandler piece. No. Um, I don't think he had that much influence on it, honestly. No, I don't think that he did. But again, just seeing him play this character doing this performance of masculinity routine or the anti-performance of masculinity i i'm interested in seeing how that develops because that is the main link i'm seeing between these first two movies and i i think it's going to be interesting to see after that scene where rex is coaching him to be angry the fact that sandler is seen as kind of a rage comedian at times uh, mm-hmm. I don't know the best way to say that, but like, like I'll do comedy bits where I act to be offended by stuff in a way where I get all hot and bothered about the fact that someone likes a band and go on a rant about it for no reason because, you know, I'm entertaining my friends when I really don't care. And that's a lot of what he does as a comedian in the next movie we watch for sure. But like even that movie Anger Management where he's just angry. Yeah, But it's going to be interesting to see the fact that he goes from so mild and you have to force him to be angry to making anger his presentation. And I guess the growth from him of being a slightly side character to the main focus and how he has to hold that. And I don't know. I don't know past yeah. that. We'll see next time, right? Yeah. What's, what's next time, Alex? Next time is Billy Madison. Now, I'm really interested in seeing if I've actually seen this movie. Um, I cannot. I have a really hard time remembering movies that I've actually seen and haven't seen. Like, remember when we watched John Wick 2 together? Yeah, and you had seen the entire movie and you forgot every part of it somehow? Yeah. Yeah. We have the exact difference in memories where I remember, like, small bits of movies I watched, like, 20 years ago. And you can't tell me if you've seen John Wick 2. So... That's that's how our memories are different. Like I said in episode zero, like Billy Madison, Happy Gilmore, like <laughs> those early movies, they're the same in my brain. So hopefully I'll be able to distinguish them when I'm sitting down and forcing myself to pay attention. I don't think it's going to be a surprise to anyone. Billy Madison is a three-star Sandlayer movie. It is very important to the canon and the growth of Sandler as a being and as a producer. It's- yeah, I'm excited to to see it or maybe re-see it. Alright, quick question. Billy Madison or Happy Gilmore, which one's about golf? Happy Gilmore is about golf. Oh, you got it. There you go. Okay. You you weren't sure, were you? I wasn't. <laughs> I'm going to point this out. Guess what the meta score for Billy Madison is, according to Metacritic? 54. 16. I'm sorry? Yeah, like, the movie is noticeably, like, loved. It's a cult classic. I mean, you can't even call it a cult classic. It's just a classic movie. Everyone loves it. Why is it a 16? Is the Adam Sandler hate that real? That they're willing to bombard a movie from 25 years ago and be like, oh, it was actually crap? I think that's so weird because when people talk about Adam Sandler, they'll say stuff like, oh, I don't like any of this new stuff. But then usually they'll use Billy Madison as an example of his yeah, movie. Or Happy Gilmore. Those are, or or The Water Boy. Those yeah. are the three movies I hear people say, well, I like those movies. Of course. Sometimes the wedding singer's thrown in there. Yeah. I do want to point out, if you want to watch along, uh, Airheads is not available anywhere. And I'm sorry about that. But Billy Madison's Hulu availability 
So watch it there before tomorrow. Or whenever you're listening to this, you don't have to listen to these every day. You don't you don't have to do that to yourself. We have to do it to ourselves. Please take my wife. <laughs> no, we, we can't end it. We haven't set our Twitters and stuff. <laughs> I know. I just thought it would be really uh, funny to I, say I, that line. Yeah. Again. <laughs> I, um, I forgot that we're supposed to say it every time. Uh, <laughs> no, I never said that we were going to do that. I just thought I, it was I, I think really I did say, say we were going to do that. Did you? Yeah. Oh. Anyway, you can catch this podcast at... Laugh at him pod on Twitter. And I'm Kitty Crusade on Twitter. And I'm at Joska. That's J-A-W-S-K-A, in case you don't know. Um, and you can see the games we've made at wannabegames.com. You don't even have to type in the debuts, apparently. No. Well? Please take my wife. <laughs> <laughs>